0: Thank you, our Father, for this book that we hold in our hands. It's a life-giving book. It's a book of hope. It's a book of healing. It's a book of restoration. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of instruction. It's a book about you. It's a book that that leads us to You, guides us to You, and transforms us into Your character. There is no other book like this book. There is no other truth that compares to the truth that is in this book. And so, Father, as we prayed earlier, would You give us ears to hear this? Would You give us eyes to see it? would you give us a heart that is inclined to it the natural man has no inclination in this direction so would you by your spirit incline us towards you by what we are heard by what by what we hear in this book over the next minutes and would you take this word and transform it by transform us by it We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. Several years ago, I read through Psalm 119 and was particularly struck on the occasion of that reading about all the different ways that the psalmist responds to the Word of God. And so I I took some time to go back through and, and read through that psalm again much more slowly and much more attentively paying attention to and writing down all the different ways that the psalmist said he responded to the Word of God. I made a list that was quite lengthy. Listen to some of the ways that the psalmist says he will respond to the Word. He will account it as worthy. He will be in awe of it. He will behold and look upon and see the Word. He will believe in it. He will cling to it. He will be comforted by it. He will consider it. He will counsel with it. He will esteem it. He will hate false ways and falsehood. He will incline his heart toward it. He will learn it and know it. He will loathe the the treacherous he will long for it he will meditate on it he will not be ashamed of it he will not forget it and not forsake it he will not go astray from it he will not turn away from it he will praise it he will regard it he will reject wanderers from it he will rejoice in it and find it his joy he will remember it he will run after it and run with it he will seek it he will sing it he will speak it and tell it he will he will find it to be sweet to the taste he will give thanks for it He will consider it to be His. He will treasure it. He will trust it. He will turn to it. He will wait for it and long for it. He will weep for not keeping it and He will be zealous for it. That's a pretty impressive list, isn't it? As we come to the psalm this morning, we will come to two of the more common themes that are found in this psalm for how the psalmist responds to the Word of God in that He will love it and delight in it, and He will obey it. It's fitting for us as we start this new year to consider this psalm, as we consider our resolutions that we have made, and, and particularly if you have made a resolution to, to take in the Word of God in a particular way this year and, and focus your attention on the Scriptures and, and, and renew your commitment to take in the Word. We need this Word from the Word to guide our new resolutions for this year. Perhaps you finished 2018 on something of a down note. It was a discouraging year. And, and perhaps as you're entering 2019, you're not thinking optimistically, but you're thinking pessimistically about the coming year. And perhaps, perhaps you finished 20, 2018 on a note of joy. And and, and things are going well and and you're looking forward to what's coming in in 2019 and, and you're optimistic about what lies ahead. And friend, it doesn't matter whether you've made a new resolution or have not. It doesn't matter whether you are thinking pessimistically or optimistically about 2019. We all need to hear what this word has to say about the word of God and the scriptures. As we consider Psalm 119, we're going to consider the, the eight-verse stanza, beginning in verse 97, the delight of the Word of God. And what we're going to find the psalmist to say is, if you want to be wise, love God's Word. If, if you want to have wisdom for living in 2019, then you need to cultivate a love for God's Word. As one writer has said, there is no higher education than what the Word of God imparts. You you will not find wisdom anywhere else to supersede the wisdom that is found in the Word of God. And if you want to gain that wisdom, you need to love the Word of God. This stanza will then provide us with four encouragements for our affection of the Word of God, four encouragements to, to lead us to delighting in the Word of God. If you want to be wise, love God's Word. How can you do that? How can you find encouragement? Where will you find encouragement to cultivate uh, your love for God's Word? The first is given to us in verse 97, and it is simply this, love God's Word. Just love it. Notice he begins this stanza by saying, Oh, how I love your law. This stanza is filled with all kinds of declarations about the power of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, the ability of the Word of God. And as as he is preparing to expose those, as we'll talk about them in the next few minutes... The first thing he says is, Oh, I love your word. Your, your word captivates me. This is, this is a particularly common theme. It's one of the most common themes in this psalm. Consider, for instance, verse 47. I will delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48. I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 119, you have removed all the wicked from the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. 140, your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. 159, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Over and over and over and over again, the psalmist affirms... His love for this word. And he says it, not just with the word love, but he also uses a, a parallel term or a similar term, delight. And at least nine more times in this psalm, he will say, I delight in your word. Your word captivates me and, and it is my longing. So this love for the word of God is one of the most dominant themes in this psalm for how the psalmist will respond to the word of God. But when the, when the Old Testament writers and when the psalmist use this word love, it's important for us to remember that the emotive aspect to the word love is secondary. So guys, when you go home this afternoon or perhaps you might even just, even right now, you might just lean over and, and whisper to your wife, I love you. You, you, can, you can go ahead and do that actually if you want. But maybe you'll save it for this afternoon. And when you do that, very often, what you're saying is, my heart is is drawn towards you. I I have these these feelings of Twitter patient in my heart, and I just can't help myself. And and we're talking about that emotive part of love, and and that's good. That should be there. We want that to be there. So if, if you don't have that, guys, we want you to go there. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's not saying. Oh, my heart feels all happy inside. When he's talking about his love for the Scriptures, he is affirming his commitment to someone or something. So so when, when the Old Testament writers and the psalmist use the word love, they're talking about commitment. They're talking about fidelity and faithfulness. And so when the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your word... Well, undoubtedly, at some level, there is an emotional response. I, I like, I like it when someone reads the Word of God to me. I like when I go to worship in the temple, and and the priest unfolds the Word of God to me, and and that makes me to feel happy inside. Really, what and there, that is there at one level, but really, what's driving and compelling this statement is: I am committed to your Word. I am rock solid on your word. I will not vary from your word. I, I will not walk away from your word. And it's, it's fitting that the psalmist says that in light of what he has said in the previous stanza. Just back up to verse 96. He has finished the previous stanza and says, I've seen a limit to all perfection. So there's, there's the world saying, This is perfect! This is the way you need to go to find help. This is, this is what will sustain you. And the psalmist says, everything that the world says is best for us or great for us, there's a limit to it. It only goes so far. But he says, your commandment is exceedingly broad. So your commandment, This is the Old Testament way of saying your commandment is fully sufficient for everything I need. Your word is powerful and your word is adequate for my need today. And in light of saying that in verse 96, how can he not help but just respond and say, Oh, how I love your law. I am am committed to that faithful, sufficient, adequate word of God. God is faithful to his sufficiency. And if God is faithful to his sufficiency, how can the psalmist not respond in kind and say, I am faithful to your word as well? Notice what else he says at the beginning of verse 97. He says, oh, how I love your law. The word law there is the word Torah. And, and often in the Old Testament, when the, when you see the word Torah or law, it's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, which are also called the Torah, the the giving of the law through Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's talking specifically about that. But typically when the psalmist in Psalm 119 uses that word, he's he's using it to pull back and say, "Uh, I, I love everything about everything that you command and give us in all of your word, not just not just the Mosaic law in particular, but everything that you tell us, I love it. Anything that God says and anything that God commands, this psalmist is committed to doing and heeding. It is also well to notice that the psalmist, because he loves this law, he meditates on it all the day. Oh, how I love your law, he says. It is my meditation all the day. When he says he'll meditate, he means that, that he will muse on it. He will contemplate it. He will consider the scriptures. It's, it's his way of saying, I am going to internalize the Bible and make it my own. He's, he's mentally preoccupied by it so that he knows what's in this word and he knows how to live that word out in the life circumstances in which he finds himself. And notice he he says he meditates on it, considers it, thinks about it all the day. Now, that doesn't mean that he is just sitting at home and not going into work so that he can that he can spend time thinking about the Word of God. It doesn't mean that he's not cleaning up the dishes after dinner and helping his wife take out the garbage so that he can meditate on the Scripture. No, it means that in everything that he does in his life, Every conversation he has, every action he takes, every place he goes, every aspect of work he does, he's filtering it through his understanding of the scriptures. So what do the scriptures have to say about this life circumstance? And and is what I'm about to do or is what I'm doing fully appropriating what God has said I ought to be doing in this moment? And so... So he's letting the scriptures shape his life, mold his life, shape his life. And what we have here actually is, is something of a cycle. So he says, I love your law, I'm committed to your law. And out of the overflow of that commitment and love, I am meditating on your word. And the more I meditate on your word, I find it. To be sufficient and adequate for everything I do. And that, and that provokes more love for God. And the more, more I love God and more I love His Word, now I meditate on that Word even more. And as I meditate more, then I love that Word more. And, and it keeps going up higher and higher, moving towards God-likeness. It's an upward cycle of profitability from the Word of God. And, and what we find here is that the Bible is no small segment of his life. It's not as if he says, well, I'll give the Bible 10 minutes in the morning, and then he closes the Bible and he forgets what he's read. It's not like he says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read my Bible at lunchtime, he closes the Bible, and he walks away and he's forgotten what he's read. Or perhaps he's like one of those who, who reads in the evenings and he thinks about it in the evening, closes Bible, goes to sleep, and doesn't remember anything more. No, he's... He's meditating on it all the day. Everything he does is centered around this book. This book is central to his life. This book dictates and guides everything that he does. Spurgeon was right when he said the word of God is always most precious to the man who most lives on it. So we can evaluate whether or not we love the Scriptures, I dare say, if I would ask any of you, do you love the Scriptures, you'd say yes. Partly because you're a church, you're supposed, you know you're supposed to say yes, of course I love the Scriptures. But, but how do we really evaluate, do I love the Scriptures? Are you preoccupied with them? Are, are the Scriptures your meditation through the day? Do you find yourself, as you're walking through the day, as you're having conversations... Do you find yourself thinking about specific passages to guide you through those conversations? As you're, as you're at work and you're engaged in a task, do you, do you find yourself thinking, how can I do this task to the glory of God? As you're, as you're relating to your wife and your children, your parents, and having those conversations, are you thinking, how does the Word of God inform what I need to be doing in this moment. that That's, that's the question that the psalmist is, is answering. I, I love your word, and that word is shaping and controlling everything I do. See, our love for Scripture is not determined by our emotional response to it, but by our volitional obedience to it. So, love God's word. There's a second encouragement that the psalm writer gives us it's in verses 98 to 100, and it is love God's word because it is wise. Love God's word because it is wise. When we, when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about um, the right application of knowledge to living. So when we talk about wisdom, we're not talking about knowledge in and of itself, but we're talking about knowledge as it's applied to life. So someone has said that wisdom is the art of living well. And biblical wisdom might be described as doing the right thing at the right, for the right reason at the right time. It's, it's right thinking and right believing and right living. So it's, it's conformed by the Word of God. Where, where will you go to find the kind of wisdom that will help you to live well? And the psalmist is adamant that only the Scripture will make us wise. For instance, he says in verse 98, God's word makes us wiser than the world. Notice what he says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. There is more wisdom in all the various commands of scripture than all of the accumulated wisdom of the psalmist enemies. Now the question is, who are the psalmist enemies? He has spoken repeatedly about his enemies. They are, they are those who are opposed to both him and to the, the word of God. So, um, for instance, he has uh, verse 22 and verse 23. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimony. In other words, I am obeying you, and because I am obeying you, there are people who reproach me and have contempt for me. Verse 23, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. It is it is because I meditate on your word that even those who are in authority, even those who have position and should know better, they hate me for what I do in relation to your word. He is persecuted for his word. Verse 107, I am exceedingly... Afflicted, So there are those who see what he does and they persecute him for what he does in relation to the Word of God. Verse 121, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant and for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. So there are prideful people who are oppressing him and pushing him back and pushing against him and persecuting him because of his love for the word of God. Verse 134, redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. So his enemies are those who are pushing against him, who who are volitional in their desire to do him harm. They persecute him and particularly they are persecuting him because he loves the word of God. And they don't, and and they want him to suffer ill because of that. They are, as one writer says, people who are pridefully obnoxious with their superior attitude. They're not inclined to submit to God's word. These are people who are rebellious against the Lord, and they hate God's people. We we might just simply say the enemies are those who belong to the world system and follow the world system. It's it's people who are in the world, and of the world, and it is the world system itself. But the psalmist asserts, in verse 98, that scripture is greater than worldly wisdom. Notice what he says, for because they are ever mine. Now, Now, he could mean by that, I have... These commandments of yours, and they belong to me, so I have taken them in, I have appropriated them, and I use them, they're mine, I I believe them, I follow them, and they're good for me. And that's certainly true. But the word ever also is almost always translated in the Old Testament something like eternal. So they are eternally mine. They are eternally true. It's not just... It's not just that they are His today. It is that they are His and they transcend His relationship to Him and they are always true everywhere for all of mankind. God's Word and God's commands are always right, always good, always appropriate, always unchanging in their wisdom. So you take the commands of God. He's talking about verse 98. Consider, for instance, just what Moses wrote. And were they, were those words right when Moses wrote them? Yes. And they were right in a thousand BC when the Psalmist wrote. They were still right then. And they were still right a thousand years after that when Jesus and the apostles were on the earth. And they are still right two thousand years later today for us. And they will continue to be right in eternity for all of time. God's Word is unchanging, unceasing. It is ever and always true. And it is true on earth, and it is true in heaven. Everywhere the Word of God is, everywhere He has made a decree, in all of time, it is always right, and it is always true. And the psalmist is saying, my wisdom, the wisdom I get from God's Word, supersedes infinitely and eternally anything that the world can offer Through its system. We might say it this way only when you are heavenly wise will you be street smart. You cannot know how to live in this world until you seek wisdom from and are submitted to the one who has made this world. The world has nothing to offer, but only this book does offer truth and wisdom. That will guide us now and for all eternity, Houston Smith was a chairman of the Philosophy department at MIT for a couple of decades and While he was there on one occasion, the uh, famous atheist uh, philosopher Aldous Huxley was there as a visiting professor for a semester and and Smith wanted to sit under the tutelage of huxley and and gain. Uh, discernment and wisdom from Huxley. So he arranged to be Huxley's um, primary courier. So whenever Huxley had an appointment somewhere or a speaking engagement, Smith would take him to that just so that he could be exposed to Huxley and and hear his wisdom. On one occasion, as they're making their way to one of Huxley's speaking engagements, Huxley says to Smith this, quote, It's rather embarrassing to have given one's entire life to pondering the human predicament and find that in the end one has little more to say than try to be a little kinder. That's that's the world's solution to the problem of sin? That's... That's one of the wisest men that the world system has to produce when he considers the, the condition of mankind, the plight of mankind, the problems of mankind, and all he can say is, try and be nice. Now, I appreciate that when they teach that in kindergarten. That's, that's a good thing. But, but friends, that, that won't sustain you. That's not life-giving. How about this? When you consider the condition of mankind... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our condition. That's a revelation of what I am before God. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I deserve His wrath. Verse 24, Romans 3, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does God say about our human condition? He says, You can't make it on your own, but let me provide one who can, and I will pour out my wrath on him. And Jesus Christ will be sufficient to pay the infinite penalty of sin for all who believe in Him. And I will be considered to be just when I pour out my wrath on Him. And, and at the same time, I will also be a gracious justifier of you. I will declare you to be righteous. You're not righteous on your own, but I will do that. That's wisdom from this book the the world has nothing to offer in comparison to this book and what the the wisdom that that is in it god's word makes us wiser than the world god's word also makes us wiser than our teachers that's verse 99 i have more insight than all my teachers not only is the psalmist wiser than those who are antagonistic to him and antagonistic to God. But, but he's also wiser than those who sought to teach him and instruct him and disciple him and train him and equip him. He has more insight than them. That is, he has more comprehension, he has more understanding, he has more prudence than any of his teachers. And notice he says, then, all of my teachers... And he's reminding us of a principle that, that there is no inherent wisdom in mankind. So the psalmist will say in Psalm 14, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And they have all turned aside and together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So take mankind, take all of mankind's accumulated wisdom, and in himself, when he trusts his own teaching, he has nothing to offer. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah will affirm in Jeremiah chapter 10 that even when the learned priests of Israel, when they rely on their own wisdom, they will end up leading the sheep of Israel astray. They're false shepherds. And the psalmist says that the reason that he has more wisdom than all of his teachers is not because he is innately smarter than them, but it is simply because, verse 99, your testimonies are my meditation. I am wiser than my teachers because I have made it my life's purpose to meditate on your word. He has paid particular attention to the testimonies of God. That is, he's paid attention to the standards of God's truth, the warnings of God, the admonitions of God. And he has focused his mind and filled his mind with those truths. This psalm repeatedly affirms the psalmist's commitment to reflect on and meditate on, on God's truth. Consider verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 23, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so that I will meditate on your wonders. Verse 48, I lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. 148, he says also, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. He's meditating, he's thinking on he's he's cultivating a mind that is focused on the word of God. What's interesting is you take all the words for all the occurrences of this word meditate that he uses in this particular verse in the Old Testament, and twenty percent of the uses, almost twenty, not quite twenty, but but close to 20% of the uses of, of this word are in this single psalm. It's a reminder that, that there's one thing that ought to captivate us, and it's the Word of God. Now, now, just by way of reminder as well, when we're talking about meditation, we're talking about something different than what the world does, right? You, you're aware of that? So the world says meditation Means kind of sitting in a particular position with your legs crossed. I'm not sure at my age I can do that anymore. But anyway, you cross your your feet that way, legs that way, and you kind of sit there and you make a little circle thing with your fingers and you hum a little thing, hum, and you try and get rid of everything out of your mind. That's that's worldly meditation. And biblical meditation, it's the exact opposite. I push out ungodly thinking by taking in. Godly thinking. I muse on, meditate on, think on, dwell on, cultivate, ruminate over the Word of God. So my mind is consumed with thoughts about the Word of God. You know what's ironic here is the psalmist says, I have more insight than all my teachers because your testimonies are my meditation. Did the teachers have same access as the psalmist to the Word of God? Probably. Why is the psalmist wiser than his teachers? Because the teachers evidently rejected it. Because if the teachers had meditated on it, they would have been wise also, wouldn't they? But they're not wise his wisdom has superseded them. They're a generation ahead of Him, but already He is beyond them because He has meditated on, been controlled by His thinking about the Word of God. Christopher Ashe is right when he says this. If the source of my teacher's teaching is my teacher's wisdom, then I as his pupil will never get beyond Him. But if God is my teacher which is what happens when the Bible is taught, then I may well get beyond my human teacher. And isn't, isn't that what made Jesus' teaching so remarkable? So they asked him in, in, in Matthew chapter 13, where did this man get this wisdom? He's, he's talking as someone who is different than us. He has an authority that is compelling. Where did that come from? Well, we know from from the way Jesus uses the Scriptures beginning in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. He got it from the Scriptures. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from the Word of God. Oh, friend, you don't need a high school diploma or a college degree or a master's diploma or or a doctoral degree in order to be wise. Wisdom has nothing to do with education. But it has everything to do with submission to the authority of God's teaching. The wise man is the man who meditates on God's commands, considers his condition, and then follows unhesitatingly God's instruction. Love God's Word, friends, because it is wise. It's wiser than the world. It is wiser than our teachers. Notice also that he says in verse 100 that God's Word makes us wiser than wise men. Notice that there's a progression of thought So he starts in verse 98, he's talking about the world, right? And there there are people who are outside, people who are opposed to God. And they have a certain level of wisdom, and and we know the Word of God surpasses that. And then then there are teachers, and the wisdom of God surpasses that. But the psalmist says it also now surpasses the elders. So so there are some teachers that we understand might not be wise because of their conduct of life and so on, but, but the elders... The elders ought to be wise. The elders ought to know the truth. The elders ought to be um, truthful and conformed to the truth. So Job says in Job 12, 12, Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. So so there's a phase in life. There's a a particular... situation in life when someone gets older that that the circumstances of life and, and the wisdom of the word of God being played out in their lives ought to be conforming that person to God unfortunately the wise men are not always wise so Elihu confronts Job and says in Job 32 verse 9 the abundant in years may not be wise nor may elders understand justice. There's a situation in life where, where someone who's white haired should have wisdom, and he doesn't. And, and that's what the psalmist is talking about here in verse 100. I, I understand more than the aged that, that there are these people that ought to know from life experience and, and life exposure, and they don't know. They've not been conformed, they've not been changed. When is an old man, not a wise man, when he rejects the counsel of the word of God? Paul will talk about what a, a wise man ought to be, or an old man ought to be. Titus chapter two, he says in verse two, "Older men are to be temperate, un, excuse me, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance." That's an old, wise man. And, and just for a little truth in advertising here, when Paul's talking about older men, he's talking about men in the last half of life. So we'll make the dividing line 40-ish. So that's probably putting some of you in that category of older men. You're not really thinking of yourself as being there yet. But the apostle says that's where you ought to be. Temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love. In perseverance. So when is an older man not wise? It is when he is intemperate, undignified, insensible, unorthodox in faith, unorthodox in love, and unorthodox in perseverance. It is then that he is not wise, but he is a fool. He should know better because of the experience of life and his exposure to God's word. Friends, there is nothing more tragic than an old fool. He's foolish when he should be wise. He's a follower when he should be a leader. He has wasted his life and it's too late to do anything about it. And notice as well that I think that this psalmist is speaking about the elderly people in his life. So notice verse 98. He says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, people who are opposed to me. And I have insight, verse 99, more than all my teachers, the teachers who have built into my life and discipled me. And I think he would have us to think the same thing in verse 100. I understand more than my elderly people, that the people who are aged in my life. So, so the people who are spiritually ahead of me should have been discipling me and should have been training me and they haven't done it. The grandfather's in my life, have not poured into my life. And I am, instead of being trained by them, I am wiser than them. I have more understanding, more discernment, more clarity than them. His elderly people have let him down. But God hasn't let him down. Notice verse 100. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. He had no one to mentor him, so he turned to God's precepts, to God's guiding principles, and he observed them all. He's, he's attentive to God's guiding principles. He's considered and comprehended and obeyed everything that God has said to him to do. And that contemplation and that obedience has given him more wisdom than the elderly in his life. Again, the real tragedy is that the elder elderly could have been wiser than him. But they weren't because they evidently, like the teachers, were inattentive to the Scriptures. They didn't pay attention to what the Scriptures had to say and they didn't do what the Scriptures said to do. You know, friends, it's it's really sad when someone gets to the later stages of their life and, and they don't have the finances to sustain them so they've spent all of their life working and they have nothing but friends, it's, it's an incredible tragedy when someone gets to the end of life and they're bankrupt in wisdom and not just finances. That's the real tragedy. That's the real sorrow. And that's where these people were. They, they should have been wise and they weren't. But this young man was because he, he just had a very simple philosophy. God says it, I do it. God says it, I obey it. God compels it, I willingly, joyfully submit to and follow Him. And that makes Him a wise man. As one writer has said, true wisdom does not depend on a lifelong experience, but rather upon obedience to God's precepts. When we expose ourselves to God's truth and then and then we cultivate the practice of, of doing what we see and understand from God's Word, then we will become wise. This section, verses 98 to 100, follows um, verse 97. right? So in verse 97 he says, Oh, how I love your law, and and I meditate on it, and because I meditate on it, I become wise. Wise And friends, here is hope for living. You don't need to be a scholar to be wise. You don't need an education to be wise. You don't need money to be wise. In order to be wise, you need a Bible and you need submission. This is why William Tyndale was exactly right when he said, while working on his translation of the Bible into English, a plowboy with the Bible would know more of God than the most learned ecclesiastic who ignored it. That's why he translated the scriptures, so that he can put the scriptures into the hands of a plowboy, that a plowboy can become wise. Only this book, my friends, has the words of life, and only meditating on this book will lead you to wisdom. Love God's word because it is wise. There's a third principle here, and it is in verses 101 and 102 love God's word enough to obey it. Love God's word enough to obey it. It's not enough to know the Bible. If we will love the Bible and be wise, then we must obey the Bible. So, so the psalmist builds on what he says at the end of verse 100. At the end of verse 100, because I have obeyed your, uh, because I have observed your precepts, not just that he has seen them, but that he has seen them and then done something about them. He's, he's been obedient to them. And because of that, he says in verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way. The, the implication is that there is something compelling his feet to go in a particular direction, and that direction is not towards God. He has, he has a natural inclination to gravitate towards sin. This is what the New Testament calls the flesh, to go away from God. That's, that's the bent of mankind, to go towards sin and rebellion. And notice he says, I have restrained my feet he is ruthless and he is relentless in his commitment to not go towards evil the, the, the sense is that the, the battle is hard it's not easy his his flesh wants to go and wouldn't it wouldn't it just be easier to go that way yes and in one sense there it is easier to go that way but then but then i don't get the benefit of obedience to christ that the other day had a Great example of this. The other day I went I went running Friday afternoon. So it'd been rainy and cold all week, right? And I got done a little bit early on Friday afternoon, and so it was about 4.35. And I thought I can if I change right, right now, I can go get in a quick run. And so I went out, went out to the middle school track, and I'm running around the track. And I did a quarter mile, and I was just dying. It's like, what have I ever run before? What's the deal? And everything was hurting. My lungs were hurting. My legs were hurting. Found out later I was going way faster than I normally do, which is why I was having trouble, but that's a side point. At a quarter mile, I'm just thinking, I just, I just want to stop. I just want to stop. And if I stop, can't I, I mean, I, I changed. I came, I drove all the way to the middle school and, and I actually ran a quarter mile. Can't I just claim a three and a half mile run and all the benefits and the calories burned from a three and a half mile run? No. You've got, you've got to restrain yourself. You've, you've got to push yourself. You've got to compel yourself. You only get the benefit of obedience when you obey. And when you give in to evil, you don't get the benefits of obedience. It takes work. It takes discipline. It takes submission, a willingness to say the word of God is authoritative in my life and even when it's hard, even when it goes against what the flesh wants to do, I will obey. The commentator loophole is exactly right. One cannot be lax about evil and expect to profit in the use of the word. You want the word of God to be profitable in your life? Then you cannot take a lax attitude towards evil and sin. You have to restrain yourself. And notice that the psalmist does not allow himself to follow any evil way. I've restrained myself from every evil way. Every form of evil is off limits to him. This is akin to what he says in Romans, Paul says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So there, there are inclinations of the flesh to go in particular direction. And Paul says, don't allow it in any way. There's never a benefit that comes from evil. It's always to your detriment. It is always to your destruction. Just by way of application, are we allowing ourselves minor indiscretions and liberties that the Lord labels as evil? The psalmist says, I will keep my feet from every evil way. Is there there something that God has identified as evil And you're playing with it. And and you're you're moving towards it. Maybe you haven't engaged in it fully yet, but your heart is inclined to it. You're drawn by it, attracted to it. The psalmist says, I restrain my feet. I I don't go there. Because I'm submitting to the Word of God. I'm submitting to the power of God that is inherent in this Word to follow him and keep away from evil. Maybe a follow up question. Where, where, where am I allowing sinful evil into my life? Where am I unrestrained? Where, where do I need to restrain myself? Where, where am I deviating from a straight trajectory towards God and then just giving the excuse for it? No, 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 the way to God is this way. Well, I know, but I'm only like two degrees off. No, the way to God is this way. There's no deviation. There's there's no wandering off the pathway. And, and recognize that your flesh is prone to deceiving you about all of these questions. Your, your flesh is prone to saying, that's okay, the, the work is too hard. And you can get most of the benefits of mostly following God. No. No, you need to follow all the way in every way. And and, and what's, why would you do that? Notice the Psalmist Motivation 101. I've restrained my feet from every evil way so that I may keep your word. The great influence on his life is a yearning to submit to God's word. He would rather have obedience than ease. He, he wants nothing more than to delight in God and his word. Listen, friends, lasting joy will never be found in disobedience and rebellion. Oh, occasionally there will be some short-term thrills that come from rebellion and disobedience but they never pay off ultimately. Well, that's not completely true. They do pay off, but they don't pay off in the way you want them to. If there's rebellion and there's open disobedience, it will lead you to suffer consequences in this life, probably, and in the next life life, always. Sin and rebellion and wandering away from God never pays off in the way the person wants. So here's a question. The psalmist is convinced that God's way is always better than the world's way. The psalmist is convinced that, that keeping God's word is above all other things. So what's your compelling desire? What's your supreme passion? what 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 motivates you more than anything else? do you do you indulge your personal desires even if they're evil? or are you resolute in pursuing compliance to God's word? Another question, if I, if I am unrestrained in some forms of evil, is it because I do not have an overwhelming desire to keep the word of God? Well, friend, every time, Every time we engage in some form of sin, we're affirming we don't love God's law, we don't love God's word, and we think it's not sufficient for us in that moment. Now, we know better than to say that, probably, but that's what's going on at the heart level. When I'm captivated by some sin, when my... When my feet move towards fleshliness, I am rejecting the authority of God and the power of His Word in saying, It's not enough. I need something more. Oh, friend, come to the river of life. Come to the, the hope and sustenance that is to be found in the waters of God's Word. Come to the green pastures of God's Word and set yourself to obey Him. The psalmist will say the same thing in verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances. I I, I could have gone away from you. I could have wandered another pathway, but I have not retreated from you. I have not deviated from your truth. I have not become apostate in my thinking or my living. I have stayed on the path of righteousness where the good shepherd has led me. And he stays on that pathway to righteousness Notice the end of verse 102, because you yourself have taught me. Here here the psalmist is emphatic, you, you yourself have taught me. You and no one else have taught me. This is not just a book. This is God's book and God's authority and God's power. It is the infinite, eternal, omniscient, wise, good God that has commanded it. So, So the psalmist says, if that's who's commanded it, then I'm going to follow it. Love God and love the Word of God enough to obey it. And then you will find joy, even as the psalmist concludes in verses 103 and 104, love God's Word by hating evil. When the psalmist loved God's Word and meditated on God's Word and obeyed that Word, he discovered the benefit of joy. How sweet are your words to my taste. The words of God were particularly palatable to him. He says they were sweeter than honey to my mouth. Regine made an observation a few weeks ago. Um, she was cleaning out some stuff in our pantry and she said, you know, have you ever noticed that whenever we go on a trip somewhere, we come back with some form of honey? It's it's like everywhere we go, it's like, well let's get the best of, you know, let's get the best of um, you know, South Texas. Well let's get some of their honey. Let's get the best of England, let's come back with some of their honey. Let's get the best of Russia, let's come back with some of their honey. Let, let's get the best of, you know, Florida, let's come back with some of their honey. Everywhere we go, we come back with honey. We've got honey all over the place in our kitchen. Why? Because it's sweet. And I like it. And the psalmist says, I can think of nothing sweeter than honey. I don't know if that's technically true. There's probably something out there that might be sweeter than honey. But in his world, at his time, that was the ultimate. The sweetest thing is honey. He says, When I consider the Word of God, it is more palatable to me and more desirable to me than honey. I want honey I want honey on my biscuit, you bet. I want the Word of God more. That's tastier to me than the tastiest treat that I can find in this world. Friends, there's no no bitterness for him from his obedience to Christ. His obedience has not left him with a bitterness of regret. He's not sorrowful for his obedience. He sees the Word of God, what the Word of God compels him to do, and he does it. And he says it's sweet. And the reason that the word of God is so sweet to the psalmist is verse 104 because from your precepts I get understanding. It's sweet to me because I, I know how to live in this world when I read your word, I get wisdom from your word. Therefore, his concluding statement, 104, I hate every False way. Mom always said it was bad to say, I hate, like green peas, which I happen to hate, but mom said it was bad to say that. There's one time it's good to say, I hate. And it is when we say, I hate every false way. I hate every way that leads away from God. I hate everything that is a pseudo-God. I hate everything that is associated in any way with falsehood. It is anything that leads me away from the truth. I hate it. And friends, we we need to cultivate in our minds, to to tell tell ourselves in our minds the truth of a situation. And speak to ourselves the truth of what is true and what is false, and when it is false, to hate it. When you see an advertisement with an alluring woman, do you tell yourself she is a seductress of Proverbs 5 that is designed to lead me away from Christ? And if I, if I cultivate the mental thought that that ad wants me to cultivate, it will lead me mentally and perhaps even physically to a place that will result in the destruction of my life. Can I see her for what she really is? She's a prostitute. She's not an attractive woman in a revealing dress. She's a prostitute who is leading me astray. A friend, hate it. Whether it's that or, or, saying, well, I can just you know I can just fudge these numbers a little bit on these forms that I'm going to submit to the IRS, and that'll be to my benefit. No, friend, hate it. God says in Romans 13 that that the government is entitled to have your funds. You owe it to them, and there's no benefit to holding it back when you're. Owe it to them. So, so pay it. Tell tell yourself the truth. And friend, hate every false way. Do you hate everything that's false and against God? If you don't, it means that the Word of God has not shaped you the way it is designed to shape you. Because the Word of God, when the Spirit of God takes it and plants it into our soul's gives us a sickness, a hatred of things that are evil. We can't tolerate them. We don't want them. It doesn't mean that that you will always fight against sin perfectly, but it does mean that, that even while you are wrestling and struggling, you hate the thing that is calling for your attention. I am, uh, I am closer to the end of life than the beginning of life. I've been a pastor longer than some of you have been alive. That's sobering. I've counseled a lot of people over the years. I have fought against a lot of my own sin over the years. And I've learned one thing that is true, and it's in this verse. You will never win the battle against sin until you hate it. If you don't have a hatred of your sin, you will not fight against it. If you do not have a hatred of sin, you will at some level love it, embrace it, feed it, cultivate it, and find your joy there. Oh friend, this word, this book, is designed to help you Hate your sin. Let it do its work to cultivate a desire for obedience to Him and a hatred of your sin. Let me just add if you are not a Christian this morning, you cannot love God and you cannot hate your sin. In fact, until you submit to the authority of Christ, you will love your sin. And you will hate God's word. Now, now you will say, well, wait, 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 wait. I don't love my sin. I don't like my sin. Are you submitting to Jesus Christ? No. Then I submit to you that you love your sin more than you love Jesus Christ. And until you love Jesus Christ, you cannot hate your sin with all the fullness that He would have you to know. So you must You must this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you want out of your sin and you want out of the consequences of your sin and you want to have joy and peace and satisfaction and fullness, then you must embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. And only then can Jesus Christ take this book, plant it in you and transform you by it and through it. And so if that's your condition this morning, I urge you and compel you to come to this book and find the words of life and hope. Come to the one who is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. As we read earlier, begin trusting him today. Begin trusting today that he paid the penalty for your sin and can remove the power of your sin in your life so that you can obediently live for him. There is nothing that will ever be more sweet in life than your obedience to him. There's one more thing that I would have you notice about this stanza. This stanza is somewhat unique in that it makes no requests of God. Virtually every other stanza, the psalmist has at least one request from God. Uh, Consider, for instance, the previous stanza, verse 94. I am yours. I I belong to you. Save me. Will, Will you save me? Will you help me? Verse 86 and the stanza previous to that, all your commandments, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. I I have no one to help me but you. Would you Would you provide for me? Would you care for me? Would you sustain me? But in this stanza, 97 to 104, he makes no requests. Instead, he makes two commitments. I love your word. And I will obey your word. And those two commitments stand as examination points for us this morning. Do I love the word of God? And do I love the word of God enough to obey the word of God? Friends, this isn't a sermon just to say simply read your Bible. It, I want you to read your Bible. It's a good thing to do. But this is, this is a sermon to say would you take in the word of God in such a way that it stimulates your love for it and for God? And would you take in the Word of God in such a way that it compels your obedience and drives you away from the evil that you hate? Father, this is what we need in our lives today. It's what we need in our lives all through this year. It's what we need in our lives, all of our lives Would you give us satisfaction with you? Would you give us love for your word, fidelity to your word, commitment to your word? And would that commitment to your word be fleshed out through obedience to your word that is sweet and delightful to us? We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.